0: We'll take your copy of God's Word and open to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. It's amazing that uh, God has had us land on this text during what we typically call Holy Week. Um, this next Sunday is our celebration of the resurrection of Easter. But we're also in the midst of studying what Jesus did and His encounter With the myriad of of not church leaders of uh, Jewish leaders who were trying to attack him this week to discredit him. Title for this morning is "Believing the God of the Living: A Corrective on the Resurrection." Let me read this text for us: Mark chapter twelve, verses eighteen through twenty-seven. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. "...came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, leaving no children." The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the, de- the dead rise... Have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The great threat to everyone's life is the end to everyone's life. I think it's fair to say that all of us have been thinking a lot more about our own mortality, a lot more about life and death and and issues of eternity in the midst of this COVID-19, the coronavirus epidemic that we find ourselves in, in this season. It's all around us. We hear of death and death statistics day in and day out. We remember that the current mortality rate for everyone worldwide is 100%. Everyone will die. It's interesting to remember the the words of that mortician who proverbially signs all of his letters eventually yours. But there is good news. There is very good news. One of the most tangible benefits of the gospel is that it actually frees a Christian. It frees a believer. Those who put their faith in Christ have the privilege of having been freed from fearing death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, they're human, they are subject to death. Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. He took on flesh and blood. That through death, Jesus' death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And listen to this. And might free those through, who, through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. There's the admission of the writer of Hebrews that all of us are are slaves to the fear of death. We're terrified of it. What happens when we die? But part of being a Christian, part of the tangible, emotional, bedrock, foundational inclinations of a Christian is that when we come to faith in Christ, because of the resurrection, we no longer have to fear death. The ultimate question with our deaths is simply this. Not just what happens when we die, but what happens when we die. What happens to me after I die? Is it judgment? Is it heaven? Is it hell? Or do we simply just stop being? That's the the doctrine of annihilationism, which means at the end of your life in this world, you close your eyes, you breathe your last for the last time, and then you just stop being. That was the theological premise of the Sadducees. They were annihilationists. They were materialists. They believed that when this life stops, you stop. There is nothing else. And the text before us is a stinging rebuke to their arrogance and to their theology. Twice in this passage, verses 24 and 27, Jesus tells the the Sadducees, you are mistaken. It's really, you are sternly wrong. You've, You've missed the point. And there is nothing that you and I want to be more correct about than what happens after we die. Or let's say it another way. This is not something you want to be wrong about. You should have a very intact doctrine and belief of what happens, not just when you die, and not just that you're going to die, but the certainty of your coming death. Being right and wrong about what happens after you die is the central focus of Jesus' encounter with the Sadducees. Again, it's Passover week in Jerusalem. It is a place where there are tens of thousands, upward of a 100 plus thousand people crowded onto this temple mount trying to get their sacrifices set, trying to offer their, their Passover lamb or goat. It's shoulder to shoulder. It's overwhelmingly crowded. It's during that time that the scribes, we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders would put on very attractive, flowing, um, even uh, overly ornate robes so that when they walked around the temple mount, everyone would see them and think, there's someone important. Look down at verse 38. In his teaching, Jesus was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. This was not just the scribes. These were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin in general. They loved walking around with that crowd of people who were, who were drawn to them because of what they were wearing and gave them respect. They were the celebrities, especially that week. Problem was, there was a upstart. A blue-collar, miracle-working teacher from Galilee who had made his way south during the Passover week. Everyone had heard of him. He had even raised the dead, raised Lazarus, just a few months before this. He shows up on the Temple Mount, begins to teach, begins to teach in parables, begins to teach straightforwardly, begins to put in, 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 uh, in their place all the Jewish leaders who are trying to put him in his place, and he becomes the object of attention. Because he was drawing attention away from them, this bitter jealousy rose in their heart, and they they conspired to take him out, to, to kill him. So they begin a series of attacks. Some together, even enemies that they were on opposite sides of the theological spectrum, they would join forces and begin to attack him in these seven successive stories that Mark gives us at the end of Mark 11 and into the end of Mark 12. This became Stump the Rabbi. Let's stump Jesus. And the idea, remember, the crowds are just are just swarming. The idea was to come after Jesus, put him in a predicament where they would ask him a question he could not answer without embarrassing himself, then they would be put back into a position of prominence in the people's minds, and Jesus would be humiliated. Little background. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells us that Jesus had spoken of his resurrection and also the conspiracy of these leaders. Listen to these texts that we've studied before in Mark eight thirty one, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. A chapter later, chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Then in Mark 10, 34. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. You know, you have to wonder... With so much teaching that Jesus had given the disciples and so much teaching that those disciples had given to others, so much rumor that was surrounding Jesus, if the Sadducees knew of Jesus' self-prediction of his own death and resurrection. The Sadducees then, in this paragraph, become another group in a long line of leaders trying to put down and shut down Jesus. It's it's like seeing a, watching these scenes, it's like watching an ace pitcher on the top of his game. Maybe even throwing a a no-hitter or a perfect game. He sets down batter after batter after batter after batter, inning after inning. They keep coming after him, trying to get a hit, and no one can. That's what's happening here. They just stand in line, coming after Jesus And they're all put in their place while trying to put him in his. Now these men, the Sadducees, had all the credentials. They wore the cool robes. They were the people who who, uh, had the educational pedigrees. They had the diplomas. They'd studied with the greatest rabbis. Everyone knew who they were. They knew them by name. However, you read over and over that the people were constantly amazed At the teaching of Jesus, not these men. Extreme jealousy began to arise. Now the Sadducees are an interesting group. I remember learning about the Sadducees when I was in Sunday school as an elementary kid. And and you probably learned about them well if you grew up in the church. We learned that the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And as odd as that little phrase is and as trite and cute as it is, it actually to this day reminds me that the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the afterlife. They set a trap for Jesus, just as the Pharisees had, just as the elders had, just as the chief priests had, just as the scribes had, just as the Sanhedrin had. They think they have, though, the best argument. They think they can finally knock Jesus out this blue collar upstart galilean from nazareth how could he possibly stand up against the theological acumen and the expertise the scholarly study of these erudite sadducees their plan trap him With their favorite doctrine and their pet peeve. Namely, the ridiculous idea in their mind of the afterlife. The ridiculous idea and notion of the resurrection. As we work through this passage then, we can discover together four parts of a corrective about the resurrection. Jesus is going to correct their notions, their false notions about the resurrection. He provides a a four-part corrective. And we'll outline this passage with that structure. Four parts of a corrective about the resurrection. The first is in verses 18 to 23. The question of the resurrection. The question of the resurrection. This means questioning the actual existence of the resurrection. Verse 18. Some Sadducees, the the original just says, Sadducees came and there's a descriptor of the sadducees they they, they come with an explanation sadducees who say that there is no resurrection they come to jesus and begin questioning him saying this is their turn they're in the batter's box jesus has struck out everyone else and it's their opportunity to try to score Now, everyone knows that the two most famous groups in the New Testament, uh, especially in this last week of Jesus' life, were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Historically, they were the groups that came against Jesus uh, uh, with with the most um, uh, aggression. What's interesting is the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually, they actually found the definition of who they were most often in contrast with the other. Let me explain. The Sadducees were known as those who were materialists. They didn't believe in angels. We'll see that in a moment. They didn't believe in uh, the resurrection. They believed that this life, this world, this material body is all there was, and when you're dead, you're done. The Pharisees, however, believed in the resurrection, in angels, in demons, in in the, uh, the judgment in the afterlife, in reward in the afterlife. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that we meet the Sadducees. And all we're told about them here is that they don't believe in the resurrection. We'll come back to this text in a moment, but in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, we find something else out. This will come to bear in how Jesus explains his position. Acts 23, 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, we knew that, nor an angel... Nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. See there? They were in opposition to one another as those who believed in the material alone and those who believed in the material and immaterial. Talk more about that and their disbelief in angels in just a moment. Broadly speaking, however, though, the Pharisees were the theological conservatives... And the Sadducees were the theological liberals, though the Sadducees actually considered themselves the ultimate purists and the ultimate conservatives. Why? Because they believed that all the Word of God was, that everything in the Word of God was contained only in the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the completion of the canon in their mind. That was all they believed to be Scripture. They didn't hold to the histories, 1st 2nd Samuel, the Kings, Chronicles. They didn't hold to the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They didn't hold to the prophets being scripture. They were purists, but in being such purists in their own mind, became liberals by dismissing the supernatural. What's important is that they wrongly, as Jesus is about to point out, wrongly held and believed... That the Pentateuch, their scriptures, did not mention or talk about a resurrection from the dead. The Jewish historian Josephus describes the Sadducees as, quote, those who believe that the soul perishes with the body, end quote. Again, they were what we call annihilationists today. And again, one of the main distinctions between the two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, had to do with whether or not you were alive after you died. There was any kind of resurrection. And again, the Pharisees strongly believed in the resurrection. Just a little footnote, it is noteworthy that we find several Pharisees coming to faith in Christ. The the theology of the Pharisees, not their hypocrisy, but their theology, uh, more made their minds ready to understand the truths of Christianity than did the Sadducees. The New Testament records several Pharisees coming to Christ, John fifteen fifteen John uh, 3, 1. And we also know that Paul himself was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And again, back to the Scriptures. They believed and held that the Pentateuch, the book of Moses, did not contain anything about life after death. It is these men, the Sadducees, who now take that swing at Jesus to see if they could discredit Him and distract Him and embarrass Him and humiliate Him and turn the crowds away from Him. All these religious groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, all of them have really began treating Jesus like a a piñata. You know, Pinata, little child's birthday is blindfolded, and there's a pinata that's hung over a branch. Or, and every time he takes a swing, they would pull it up and he would miss, and it's a fun game. And they watch, and they keep taking swings at Jesus like a pinata, but no one ever lands a blow. But this, this is not a child's game. This is dealing with the God of the universe who actually wrote the Pentateuch. In human flesh. No child's play. So they ask, verse 19. Teacher, they address him with the customary greeting of respect. Moses wrote for us. Stop right there. Moses wrote meant in the first five books. Specifically, this is going to be an allusion to a text in Exodus 3. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother... I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 25... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves behind a wife, leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. What's going on? What, what is this? They're referring to a regulation in the Pentateuch called leveret marriage or brother-in-law marriage. Lever is the Latin for brother-in-law, leveret, leveret marriage, the, the, the obligation of a brother to marry a his brother's wife. I think it's important too to remember that they've come with their Bibles open. I know that the Scriptures were in scrolls, but but in essence, they, they were asking Jesus to debate a text in the Law of Moses. They wanted to go tango with Jesus on Scripture. Not a good idea. Now the text to which they're referring is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10. You can turn there if you want to. This is a, an interesting passage and worth our attention for a moment. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. Moses writes, when two brothers live together, that doesn't mean in the same house. That means they live in the same community. And one's not in northern Israel, one, one's not in southern Israel. When they lived around each other... And one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the deceased man shall not be married outside the family to a strange man, a foreigner. Either someone not in the family or even worse, someone who wasn't a a Jew. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn from whom she bears uh, shall assume the name of his dead brother so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This was a way of caring for the brother, caring for the the orphans, caring for the wife. Only the firstborn would be named after the brother. All subsequent children would be to the the brother who had redeemed her. But, verse 7, If the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, a little footnote, this is exactly the plot line of Ruth chapter 4, where Boaz, who's an extended relative, ends up marrying Ruth because those, the, the, the brother who had the, the first right of marrying her refused to. I do not desire to take her, verse, eight. verse 9. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall declare, this is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house in Israel. His name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Can you imagine coming into a new neighborhood? You just move from one side of the, of the city to the other. And, uh, and you say, who lives there? And someone says, oh, that's the house of him whose sandal is removed. And the point is that it was known to all the community that you said no to marrying this woman. And that's exactly what happens in Ruth 4, and that's what Boaz comes to the rescue and marries Ruth. In God's providence, in God's providence, this lever up marriage becomes the central issue about the resurrection In the mind of the Sadducees, it obligated that a male sibling marry his deceased brother's widow in order to preserve the family name and the brother's inheritance. Actually, again, it was a gracious law to care for widows and orphans. Well, the Sadducees now take Deuteronomy 25 and this law and propose a a hypothetical situation that is ridiculously, ridiculously grandiose. And their idea is to try to make the doctrine of the resurrection look silly and absolutely absurd. Notice, their major fundamental assumption is that the afterlife, the resurrection, is just like the temporal life that we live now. Here's the trap. Verse 20. Back to Mark chapter 12. There were seven brothers. I mean, the story would have worked with two or three but they go extreme into seven. Seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, leaving no children. Poor girl. The second one married her, and he died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. Poor lady. So, all seven ends up marrying her, leaving no children, and all seven die. And last of all, I think in an expression of grace, verse 22, uh, the the woman died also. Here it is, verse 23. This is their question. In that scenario, Jesus, in the resurrection, after the people are raised from the dead, when they rise again, that was so tongue-in-cheek, that was dripping with sarcasm. Probably something like, when they rise again, which one's wife will the woman be? Because all seven had married her in this life. You can hear them snickering, elbowing each other. Got him. There's no way he can get out of this. The Leveret Law, they say, makes the idea of the resurrection ridiculous and complete chaos if there is a resurrection, people who are married more than once will be running around heaven trying to figure out who their spouse is. That's the point. They're saying that to believe in the resurrection is absurd, irrational, and ridiculous because the law of Moses would prevent it. The Sadducees believe they, they have a gotcha moment with, with Jesus. This is like a reporter at a press conference asking someone a question that they think will end up embarrassing the politician. They think they have a theological question that could not be answered by anyone who believed in the resurrection. What is Jesus supposed to say? The the, the first husband or, or the last husband or the best husband? What's the right answer to that? Who is her husband in the resurrection? Again, their assumption was that the afterlife and marriage is just like this life and marriage here. By the way, just a little footnote, don't miss the fact that by the time of Jesus, I know that we have uh, the question of of multiple wives in the Old Testament, but notice here that uh, the polygamy of the Old Testament was assumed to be uncharacteristic and unrighteous. Even these Sadducees assume that monogamy was the norm. So the idea of a woman's being married to seven men in heaven is designed to expose the whole concept of resurrection as ridiculous. So, if Jesus were to grant the assumption that the afterlife continues, the norms of this life, which of the seven husbands would be this poor widow's Husband, That's the question of the resurrection. That's the first part of the corrective. <clears throat> now let's come to the second part of the corrective about the resurrection. Number two, the certainty of the resurrection. The certainty of the resurrection. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, it is, is this not the reason... You are mistaken. Plenao, mistaken. Literally, you're wrong. Is this not the reason you have failed in your biblical logic? That, this is the reason, you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when, not if, when they rise from the dead. Twice, in verse 24 and 27, Jesus tells these Sadducees they are wrong. It's a strong Greek word, planao. So he responds with two questions. The first question confronts their hermeneutics, the, the principles of interpretation of the Sadducees. He goes right after how they handle Scripture. Literally, Moses' words or the book of Moses. Their their flaws, by the way, their flaws hermeneutically, and and their flaws with with their interpretive layers of understanding God's Word is the exact same as modern-day liberals. They, They don't understand the text, and they don't believe in the power of God. The same two issues are alive and well in modern liberalism. This is a rebuke to the respected theologians who have just come quoting the law of Moses. They were so proud. they were quoting the scriptures. They understand Deuteronomy 25, and Jesus is going to pull out Exodus three on them in a minute from their own book. Verse 25 is the key. Look at what Jesus says. Look at what the Son of God says. For when, when, he just goes right after their presupposition. He doesn't say, let's take the the idea of a resurrection and talk about it. No, he says, when, he just assumes that there is life after death, when they rise from the dead. Not if, we already know that Jesus believes in the resurrection, he's predicted his own He's promised also resurrection to those who believe him. There's such a sweet, there's such an endearing text. Right before Lazarus is raised from the dead, in John 11, verse 25, Jesus is talking to Martha. Jesus says to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. How clear is that? And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's eternity, eternal life. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha says to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. There's an interesting parallel thought there. Martha is saying, by saying I believe you're the Christ is the same thing as saying I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. Yes, Jesus believed in and taught and assumed life after death, which makes us all ask if we are ready for that time when we are experiencing life after death. It's certain. When they rise, four parts of a corrective about the resurrection, the question of the resurrection the certainty of the resurrection, and now number three, the nature of the resurrection. The nature of the resurrection. Jesus is going to correct their wrong understanding about the nature of those who rise from the dead. Verse 25 again, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Interesting, interesting verse. When Paul was giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 23, we referred to this a minute ago, but I, I want to give you a little bit broader context now. Luke gives us this helpful footnote about the Sadducees as well as the Pharisees and their conflict with each other. I want you to imagine the scene. The Sanhedrin has called Paul on the carpet. Listen, these are likely the same men who were... In this crowd and the previous crowds confronting Jesus. And they ask him to give a defense. In the middle of this defense, in Acts 23, verse 6, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council. Now, this is just genius. He sees that the Pharisees over here who have a belief uh, system and the Sadducees over here who have a different belief system, maybe instead of me taking them on, it might be helpful if I showed that they're not on the same page and that's exactly what he does. He says, brethren, I, Paul, am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Paul's message was not just the death of Christ for sins. He preached that, but it was also the hope of resurrection because of Christ's rising from the dead. Verse 7, listen to this. Acts 23, 7. As Paul said this, there occurred an argument, a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So the people who are now accusing Paul began accusing one another. Now we get some color from Luke. Verse 8, I read this earlier. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, just materialists, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul geniusly gets them to argue with each other as they're trying to argue with him. Again, the Sadducees here In Mark 12, they don't believe in life after death, nor did they believe in the existence of angels, which Jesus is going to cite in a moment. Pharisees believed in them both. So in talking about these angels, the angels are in heaven, and we will be like them with regards to marriage. He goes right after their central materialistic Worldview. The Lord never backed down from defending accurate, God-centered, biblically studied theology. He never backed down from correcting errant theology. And now we learn something interesting from Jesus. It's just an aside. It's just his answer, but we learn something from Jesus about life after death. What do we learn? Death dissolves the covenant of marriage. Paul from the same thing in Romans 7-2. Romans For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but after the husband dies, she is released from law concerning her, the law concerning her husband. She can get remar- remarried. And the point Paul is making is built on the point that Jesus made. Death dissolves the covenant of marriage. The Sadducees didn't understand that. If, if they had, then their, their entire argument about lever-up marriage would have been moot. Now, can I just say, just personally, I understand this. I, I, I love God. I love His Word. I want to love His Word more. Um, but, but I've always had just a slight bit of theological heartburn over this. Well, not theological, more practical heartburn, because I love my wife so much. And to think that we will get to heaven and just say, hey, sister, hey, brother, I just wonder if we might find a cloud somewhere and I could steal a kiss from her, but probably not. There's no marriage, there's no giving in marriage. In other words, there's no relationship that parents have with their children, no relationship that we have with dating and getting married. That's like the angels. They don't get married. They don't produce offspring. By the way, that's the only point Jesus is making here about our relationship with angels. He is not saying, as many teach, that we become angels when we die as Christians. It's just not true. That's not what he's saying. He said we're like them in that there's no marriage in heaven. That's all he's saying. In fact, similarities to angels in the afterlife seem to be limited to marriage, the issue of marriage. We have significant differences with the angels. Probably the most uh, uh, obvious one is that they don 't understand salvation like we understand salvation. Peter tells his readers in first Peter one verse nine, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search of the, of the and careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or Time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them the prophets that they were not serving themselves but you in writing the scriptures and the things which we now have and have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So all that's set up to say this: things, the gospel, things, grace, mercy, forgiveness, second, third, one hundred chances. Things into which angels long to look. In other words, they don't experience them. They don't understand them. So Jesus is just making a point about marriage. He's not saying that we will be fundamentally like angels when we die. We'll have wings and we'll we'll be able to sing like the, the cherubim. No, that's not it at all. Heaven is not merely all we love on earth bettered, which in a sense it is, except marriage, it's very different. No reproduction, no husband leading his wife, no wife following the lead of her husband, no children, no marriage. Yet, friendship and fellowship and love will be better and deeper and richer between us all. And I really hope that you'll be there. The question of the resurrection, certainty of the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection. And then finally, the proof of the resurrection, verses 26 and 27. The proof of the resurrection. Verse 26, but. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, how clear is that? When they rise, the fact, Jesus says, that the dead rise again. Have you read your Bibles? Is what he says. Have you not read in the book of Moses? You want to quote Moses? Okay. Have you read the book of Exodus? And then he, remember, they didn't, he didn't say Exodus chapter 3. There were no chapters then. But he could say Exodus where, how does he mark where they should read? The situation, the story of the burning bush. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? It's a question mark. This is Jesus' second question and he's basically saying have you read your Bibles? He's saying if you want to If you want to talk about the Pentateuch, okay, let's go there. Let's go to the Pentateuch. In fact, let's go to the most epic scene in the Pentateuch. Let's go to the scene that we all, Pharisees, Sadducees, all Jews of the time, Jesus himself, treasure, where God gives his name, Yahweh, I am who I am, the, the unspeakable, ineffable, tetragrammaton. That was the word that was most holy to all the Jews. He says, let's go to that passage, and that passage actually teaches us what we need to know about the resurrection. Exodus chapter 3, you're welcome to turn there. Very important text. Exodus 3 verse 1, now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why is the bush not burned up? You would have stopped too. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Can you imagine this? This bush, in the phenomenon of it being on fire and not burning up, talks and it knows your name. We find out that Moses realizes he's speaking to God. God. Then he said, Do not come near me. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, this is God speaking, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, listen, For he was afraid to look at God. What's the point? Verse 27 says, He is not the God of the dead. Dead Abraham, dead Isaac, dead Jacob. He's the God of the living. You are wrong. You are greatly mistaken again. How long had it been? Hundreds of years, centuries before when Moses was talking to this epiphany, this this burning bush, this theophany. (laughs) But it's all built on a verb tense. How can God be, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they're dead? That's the point he's making. He is their God. Why? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. That's his point. The Lord's response is divine genius. He points them to the book of Moses, their source of authority, the Pentateuch, The Mount Everest moment in the law, the revelation of God to Moses, the giving of his name, and notes that God said, I am their God. Not I was. Verse 27 is the key to the whole encounter. Please notice with me that Jesus, what Jesus is doing here. The major theological point he is making is built on the tense of a verb. Instead of I was, God said I am, therefore he is. He's saying I am their God now because they're alive. They were resurrected in newness of life. They rose from the dead, not physically yet, but absent from the body is present with the Lord, and they were alive. He was their God in that moment. He's still their God today. Oh, the power of verb tense. This shows how every single word and grammatical observation in God's word are divinely inspired and eternally important. You ever notice, if you read the New Testament, how many times... Jesus is referred to and spoken of in the present tense, being alive. Paul says over and over in Philippians chapter 3, I've suffered all for the sake of Christ. I want to know Christ now. How do you know someone who's dead? You can't. I want to fellowship with Christ now. I want to enjoy the power of his resurrection now. Now. I press on to the upper goal, the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ is calling him now. The argument that Jesus uses to prove that they were alive is the same argument that we can prove to show Jesus is alive because the apostles spoke of Jesus in the present tense. He is alive now. Revelation chapter 1, I was dead, but I'm alive now and forevermore. The Sadducees are proposing another gotcha moment, but Jesus reverses their intent, and they are the ones who are now publicly humiliated and publicly exposed. In trying to use the Scriptures, they let everyone know and see that their hermeneutics, their interpretation of Scripture, was errant and flawed. Flawed. God is not the God of corpuses, corpses and carcasses and cadavers. He is the God of the living then and now and forevermore. To say that God is the God of living is saying that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are still alive now and so will you be after you breathe your last. Yes, Jesus teaches them that, and us that life after Resurrection will be different than life on earth, but it is alive. It's life nonetheless. Jesus issues this public rebuke of the Sadducees in front of all who, hear, who are hearing because they didn't account for the power of God who can raise the dead, and they, they had a bad hermeneutic that didn't take actually the, the tenses of the verb. In Exodus 3, seriously. Five days from this day, a few hundred yards from this point, where this debate is happening, Jesus' corpse will lie lifeless, dead, but in a flash, his heart will restart, his lungs will fill with air. He will sit up. John tells us that he makes his bed. He folds the grave clothes. They they were left folded in there, in the tomb. And he will provide final vindication to all that he is God's son by coming back to life from the dead. Not only this, Paul promises in 1 Corinthians 6, 4, Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. There's that power that they didn't understand. They didn't understand the power of God to raise the dead. Paul picked up on it and teaches it. There's a resurrection, listen, to life and a resurrection to judgment. We will all rise from the dead. The question is, will we meet God as Savior in his Son, the Lord Jesus who died as our substitute instead of us so that we wouldn't have to pay for our sins in death, gave us his righteousness we could never live and proved that the whole gospel plan is true because he rose from the dead. But some will raise, having rejected that, to certain judgment and eternal hell. Oh, I pray that you Receive the gospel, so that one day you can be free from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, the presence of sin. First Corinthians two nine says, "Things which eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, that all that God has prepared for those who love Him." In other words, one day true believers will see things that are invisible to us now, will hear things that are inaudible to us now. And we'll understand things that are for now inconceivable. What do we take away from this? Just three simple points. Three questions I ask myself. Are you growing in your amazement of Jesus? What what a what a man, what a God, what a genius to look at the verb tense in Exodus 3 to teach his point. The people who are growing in amazement are are we. Secondly, do you take God's word seriously, even down to the grammatical nuances? Well, we should take a clue from Jesus. Every single grammatical form and structure, every jot and tittle matters because it's inspired, inerrant, and infallible. And then thirdly, probably most importantly, are you prepared for your resurrection? A lot of people talking about life and death today in the midst of this COVID pandemic. Those are good questions. They should remind us that we need to be ready to meet the Lord at any moment on any day. And the only way to be ready is to believe and receive the good news of the gospel. I want to invite you, if if you'd like to believe that and you never have, you can do that right now. Where you sit, where you stand, you can believe that God has provided you a Savior for your sins. All of your unrighteousness, unrighteousness can be forgiven by simply believing that Jesus will forgive you because He took the penalty for those sins by dying for you instead of you on a cross. And the good news is He didn't stay dead. His Resurrection offers us power that Jesus spoke of, that Paul spoke of. That one day we will rise to newness of life with him. I trust during this Easter season that this is something you understand and embrace. If you don't, please feel free to call the church. We're manning the phones during this time. We'd love to talk to you and explain to you what it means to have your eternity settled, your resurrection secure because you believe the gospel.